You're listening to Research Inside Out, an inside look at research outside the classroom. This podcast is recorded at Lakehead University's Aurelia campus. I'm your host, Stephanie Edwards, and today I'm going to be talking with Dr. Doug West from the Departments of Political Science and Interdisciplinary Studies. Doug's research focuses on three main things, food, shelter, and community, and how politics can affect and inform how we look at these three things. Food security is a complicated issue, especially for northern communities. Doug explains that and many other topics in this podcast. So keep listening to learn more about the relationship between food and politics and how Doug's academic passion for food has changed the way that he lives his everyday life. Hello and thank you for joining us today. Today I'm with Dr. Doug West who is with the Department of Interdisciplinary Studies and Political Science. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. You're welcome. So before we get started I just wanted you to kind of explain where you are in your research and what your research is in kind of general terms. So in the most general terms I like to do research around food security issues, food sovereignty issues. And by food security, I mean identifying those uh, aspects of our food system that are lacking in terms of access uh, for people on low income or people who are perhaps unaware of the nutritional quality of the food that they eat. Uh, And also the corporate food system. So you'd sort of understand, sort of unpack the food system at a general level. And that's kind of what food security and food studies research is about. Food sovereignty is a whole other area that's grown out of it, which is to identify those factors in, in, in a, a community or in a region where people control their own food supply, which is a really interesting uh, sort of political movement. So I'm a political scientist, so I'm attracted to the sort of action-oriented parts of the food security movement. I like the theory too because I'm a trained political theorist, but there are people who uh, see the benefit of the food research area being one that then has direct results in improving people's access to food. So my, my biggest ambition now is to write a, a series of books, which I'm hoping to do, start that process uh, when I go on sabbatical next year. And that is uh, to write a book about food and all to sort of collect all the literature there is about food and sort of put it into a, a package, if so, mm-hmm. pardon the pun, and then uh, do another one on shelter, because I think shelter is essential for people to understand. So food, shelter, and then community. Those three things to me are, are the entire sort of distillation of my 25 years of being an academic. Those are the three most important things that need more research. So. Okay, so you just mentioned something I was going to ask you about. There seems to be a connection between kind of space, place, and food. Absolutely. What exactly is sort of the connection between those three things? Well, so people settle in various places in the world, and, and they settle because there's access to food and there are some communities who may not settle in the way that other people settle, but you know they may follow their food supply, and that's part of their settlement pattern. So they settle very larger areas. But the, then there's this, this idea that somehow you're responsible for feeding yourself. And that sense of responsibility also ties in with your sense of community, I think. And so a lot of people have distanced themselves from their food unwittingly to a large degree because of the, the sort of promise of convenience and the promise of the supermarket. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, there's a wonderful Clash song, Lost in the Supermarket, that you should listen to. It's quite wonderful. If you want to have that playing yeah. behind us, that's what we're talking about. We'll get you to cover at the end. Yeah. <laughs> I can't sing it, but it's a, wonder, it's, it's a, really, uh, it's a statement on, on the distancing that we have from our food supply because it's confusing. And so to take back that is really what food sovereignty is about but at the same time provide a space for that to happen. 
One of the one of the success stories that I've come across in my life is an organization in Toronto called the Stop, which starts as a food bank. Which was all these food banks were, you know, stopgap measures just to get people through till they were employed again. Well, now they've become a permanent feature of our society, as we probably knew they would. But they've morphed to some degree into a more. They, they they may have started with a kind of Christian message, which is great, and some of them are still like that. But now they've kind of become more ecumenical or less less religious oriented and less kind of blame oriented in some ways or shame oriented, and they become positive spaces. So the idea is to take a food bank and transform it into some kind of a positive space. So the Stop in Toronto offers a whole range of services: peer to peer counseling, a restaurant that anyone can come in and sit. Uh, with a sense of dignity and respect, but also as a food bank for, for those people who need to have access to food. And so I think we're watching a kind of revolution in the way we approach food and the way we interact with the, the companies that produce our food for us. And here in Simcoe County, there's a great opportunity to kind of take stock of what's going on. So there are a number of wonderful organizations who are food action oriented, who are moving down the path towards creating a food hub here, uh, which would then collect food that's created in, in the region and not stop it from leaving, but certainly celebrate that it's created here. So, And that goes everything from what's going on in Barrie right now, the Barrie-licious uh, mm-hmm. business that's going on, where you, you have access to local restaurants, but also to your own you know gardening and your own sort of sense of how you can put a seed in the ground and, and get something to grow. Just to connect yourself to your food a little bit more and become as Michael Pollan says, more conscious of everything that I, I eat and, and that I put in my mouth, including water as well. So. so something that's kind of tied into that is, I guess, the idea of farmer's markets and mm-hmm. kind of food boxes and stuff. Mm-hmm. They're sort of on trend, I guess, a little bit right now. Oh, yeah, for the last um, 20 years. Or yeah, so. and I think even, sorry, I guess the younger population sort of getting into that mm-hmm. movement, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. So do you think that can sustain itself? And if it does, what kind of outcomes do you think will come from that? Well, yeah, I think you, you put your nail, the nail on the head, which is this idea of sustainability. We can't sustain a food system the way it's run right now because it's really run with a market-oriented uh, kind of, a, a large market. So uh, most of the farming around Simcoe County now is done for export of soy or corn. And if you follow the food chain, which everybody should, the corn and the, and the soy end up becoming products that are refined into the food system for preservative purposes or or sweetening purposes. So people grow corn for corn syrup. They don't grow it for eating the corn. They grow soy for soy lecithin, which is a a kind of additive to to, to sort of pump out the, the size of the food in some ways. And so we need to understand the science of that. So this is where it becomes interdisciplinary. But we also need to to recognize that it's incredibly expensive, that process. And Along the way, there are people who are touching your food, and there's lots of food miles on the food that you're having. Plus, it's causing all sorts of depletions of local water supplies and changing to water supplies when you use a lot of uh, pesticides. So we really have to take care of our soil better as well. So the movement among young people is that I, I you know, I, I can save some money. I mean, it's sustainable. I can sustain myself by having a, a 10 by 10 plot. That's kind of what we're trying to do with the the gardens on campus here mm-hmm. is to get people to get a sense of, hey, I can produce a, enough to create maybe, you know, 10 jars of tomato sauce that then I can store and use. And I eventually want to have fruit trees here so that people can see the value of picking their own fruit, growing their own fruit, picking their own fruit, preserving their own fruit. 
And we also have a kitchen here on campus. That, so you need to have all these kind of spaces and facilities in order to be able to get the job done from, from, from farm to table, as they say, or from seed to, to eating. Mm-hmm. So, And then we, we also, I don't know if you know, we have at the library a seed-saving uh, yeah. program where you, you take the seeds out in the spring and bring them back in the fall. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. It's a pretty cool initiative. Mm-hmm. So for in kind of a general question, I guess, when most people think political science, mm-hmm. they're their mind probably doesn't go directly to food. Yeah. So how did you come down this path? Or was there a certain experience or oh, yeah, environment absolutely. that inspired yeah. it in you? So for me, I was trained as a political theorist. And as a political theorist, you sort of are responsible for understanding what I call Plato to NATO. And there's actually a book called Plato to NATO. So Plato is sort of a, considered to be the the, the first person that, that decided to write uh, and, and involve people in a discussion of what what it, what justice is and what what good government is and and how that's related to your responsibility as as a citizen, and that that discussion or dialogue is still going on. So that's what political science kinds of deal, deals with. How how do the ideas of justice and the ideas of government get translated into action? And, and so that's, I would say that's the large parameter of political science. So I was trained there. I got to know institutional structures, party politics, regionalism in Canada. As a Canadian, you know, you should be aware of your politics. We live in a colonial environment still uh, because we were a colony of Great Britain. So there's all these legacies of that. And so, you know, as I was moving along the, the academic chain, I started to become more and more curious about the value of ideas in Canada to shape the, uh, the politics and the political choices. So I ended up doing my doctoral dissertation on the word north. So I understand that the word north is used all the time in Canada to sort of give us a sense of identity, separate us from the Americans, give us a situated place or space or identity within a geographical context. But it turns out that, that the word north also is used for a variety of other reasons. It justifies certain types of actions based on uh, remoteness and isolation. It, it justifies a certain political political choice around protection and, and fortification, which is throughout our, our history and throughout our, our literature. And I think it was identified by people like Northrop Fry, the, the garrison mentality, as it's called, which is... You know, we have the, lar- the longest unprotected border in the world with the U.S., but we're afraid of them, of their inf- infiltration mm-hmm. into our system. So we create these bulwarks of, of government-sponsored enterprise, like the CBC, like uh, health plans, things like that, to differentiate us and take care of ourselves. But at the same time, we struggle with identity because we have a multicultural kind of basket of people, if you like, But because there's all these people who retain their culture. So how do you negotiate that? That's really interesting. So I was... And, and so if you put it all under this umbrella called North, people tend to think about it in terms of climate. They tend to think of it in terms of, of remoteness and isolation and, and not from the center of things. At the same time, you end up encountering Indigenous peoples. So my first encounter with food was actually through my encounter with Indigenous peoples. And when I was employed in Thunder Bay uh, to teach on remote reserves, I was actually became a kind of, I guess I was a, a supplier uh, people would give me orders of food, and I would bring them up. And I would think, well, what a, what an interesting community! They have a little store there which has the highest prices you can imagine for food, and that's kind of mm-hmm. legendary. Everybody and, and mythological in some ways too. But at the same time, they had cravings for sort of prepared foods that they couldn't get access to, and I realized it was because uh, it had to do with the media a lot. So there's a the media is a tremendous purveyor of food because of the advertising industry. 
I started thinking about how people living in remote areas were uh, affected by the food system. And I just started going backwards from there and sort of understanding what the food system was. At the same time, it turned out there were a whole lot of other people doing the same thing. And a lot of it had to do with uh, how the local farms and the local farms sort of country farm idea of a family, maybe with a, a little bit of extra land, that was being sort of swallowed up by large corporations who wanted to extract as much out of the soil as possible. Oh, you go back to Willie Nelson and the farm shows and all those kinds of activities. And, and in fact, just recently, I found the original pilot episode of Green Acres. <laughs> and, if, and people all know what Green Acres is. Yeah. Um, because they've seen it in reruns. But the original pilot episode is full of images and, and talk about food security. It now dawns on me, I mean, this is something that was happening in the 60s. And in fact, the, the actor who was in Green Acres, his name is Eddie Albert, invented Earth Day. Huh. And so, I mean, all these things sort of come together. So uh, you end up reviewing a lot of stuff you had looked before at, and, and, and in literature too. And so I'm looking now at, at in, in political theory as well, sort of in the history of political thought, for evidence of where food is used as a metaphor sometimes, uh, or it's used literally as a kind of descriptor to understand uh, what the, the political anxiety is. Things like really interesting how you start to tease out these things. So food is everywhere. And it's, but it's also kind of glossed over by a kind of sense of mythology. So I'm trying to unpack that, literally unpack the food and understand where it comes from. Well, that brings me to kind of a shift in gears, I guess, to your mm -hmm. more current mm -hmm. uh, research in northern Ontario, I guess, mm -hmm. is where most of it is mm -hmm. situated. So can you just give us an idea of what you're doing up there? Well, so what I, I'm not up or, there anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I was up there, I was engaged in a community-based research projects around the food system. What we were able to do in Thunder Bay was create the, the Food Security Research Network, which came out of the University of, uh, at Lakehead, but it just connected people together uh, who were also passionate about changing the food system. And, and But we, what we found was that there were lots of people already doing that on the ground, and we, just, we, we basically tried to connect them together in a network kind of way. At the same time, we introduced community service learning to the, the students, and community service learning around food issues was really interesting. What we would get students to do are projects with local organizations that were looking to improve their access to food or to just learn more about food. So we had professors using students, instead of having them do research papers, they would actually engage with the community and do something a little more action-oriented, but also more worthwhile in the long run for the organization and for the student. Mm. And the idea was to bring that knowledge that was gained back into the community and, and also into the classroom as well. So we end up creating this set of relationships which are, were very, very strong, and it was great. And so when I moved here, and so that my last paper, that, I, that chapter I wrote just before I left, was kind of what's going on in the North in terms of policy. How are we able to create a kind of robust or steward a, a robust um, food system in the North when there's very little arable land when there's very little um, access to, to good growing seasons because of the climate. So are there alternatives? And so there, there were lots of alternatives. And the, the one that came out in blazing, and this is something I do a little research on too, is this idea of cooperation. So the whole cooperative movement around farming started as a reaction to economic downfall back in, in, the, in the 19th century in England. And, and so a sharing economy emerges out of that. Well, now the sharing economy is, is all over the place. 
for there's there's a whole lot of degrees of cooperative kind of structures from formal cooperation in banks and you know credit unions and things like that where your money is my money and we all work together mm-hmm. it's sort of like the the one it's a wonderful life savings <laughs> alone kind of thing my money's in your house and your money's in my house so. at, at the same time there are cooperative buying clubs that have been emerged that people buy their large items and for food consumption in a large quantity and then they share the responsibility of, of divvying it up I work in uh, I, we set up an organization in Barrie called Berry Fruit Share where people are harvesting the fruit off their fruit trees in their backyards and then giving it to the food bank or keeping it or and then the next step for that is to take that fruit and then show people how to preserve it and I, my, my one of my fantasies is to have a massive pie day, <laughs> where we just like, make a million pies, and apparently it happens in other places. Really, so, I wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of things going on in in the world that can be replicated locally, uh, but at the same time, you need to kind of canvas what people want to do here, and you know, Aurelia has a reputation now in Ontario as being the most unemployed, has the highest rate of unemployment in. In, in the whole province. So I think we have a duty as a university to try and connect to them and help them understand. And you and this is a public space, this university, so it should be used by the public as much as possible. When it comes to Northern Ontario, mm-hmm. how does that region differ from the rest of the province? Like, are there big differences and that's why they're kind of well, having when you more live problems? In, when you live in Northern Ontario, and I would say anywhere from, if you, there's a line across Northern Ontario, was, in fact, if, if you did, if you read my piece, the, you, I noticed there were like five different kinds of Norths. There's the near North, the middle North, and those kinds of things. But there's also this idea of the, the North above the, the railway line which doesn't have access. So it's mostly populated by indigenous peoples. And what kind of food systems do they have? And what kind of things do they... They, they, they did have traditional food systems that were very well sustainable, and they, but they've been, in, they've been colonized. And so uh, without going into a lot of detail about that colonization, it's quite clear to me that, the, that one way of colonizing people is through changing their food system. And, and it really makes them dependent on the importation of food, and the importation of everything else. And so everything is geared towards keeping these people who live in remote areas alive, and it takes a tremendous amount of policy work and money to keep those people on their reserves in those areas, but at the same time they're de-skilling them by not being able to have access to country food and learning how to hunt and taking care of themselves in a traditional kind of way. So there's that struggle. You can see that happening right now. And so in Northern Ontario, what the, the word that characterizes almost everything that you experience there is the word colonization. There's no question about that. So living in Thunder Bay or Sudbury or any of the, the, the larger towns in, the, in Northern Ontario, you get a sense that these are kind of administrative hubs for the exploitation of mining or the forest or, or any kind of energy supply, hydro supply. What drives the economies of those towns is access to natural resources and, the, and, the, and then the um, processing of those resources. So Sudbury has, you know, the, the processing plants that create nickel. Thunder Bay has other kinds of plants that, that make paper. And, you know, so it's, it's all done to feed, literally, the, the GTA, mm-hmm. New York City, these large metropolitan areas. So our culture in the West has become much more, obviously urbanized and that also lends itself to not being able to have access to the land and to be able to learn how to grow your own food or, or to forage your own food so there's another movement going on which is to try and make the cities more responsible for their colonizing ways but in some ways we're, we're way too late 
you know, we can put green roofs on all the buildings, but at the same time, just it's the car traffic going in and out of a city like Toronto lends itself to, to, to the fact that we need to find more petroleum and more resources and more ways to, to enhance that. So I think the slippery slope is, we're, we've slipped. Yeah, <laughs> we're down. And, and I think what you can do now to salvage that a sense of dignity and relationship to land is to work on your own and really to recreate yourself in relation to your food system and recreate yourself in relation to the land and, and, and then try and build a sense of community from that. And, and it's, it's a completely different sense of community than what we think is community. But at the same time, what do you do with all millions of people who are all living huddled together and they need food? And so you have, it's a big, big question. And, um, and, you know, it's basic, but it's basic at times a thousand in some ways, you know. Like, how do you, you know, how do you, the only way to feed a city, and we have this, you see these wonderful t-shirts that say farmers feed cities. Well, farmers don't feed cities as much as corporations feed cities. And corporations feed farmers with cash for growing the crop that they want to be able to put into the processed food so they can distribute it 25 different ways but with the same product mm-hmm. inside the box. And it's a trick. It's a big trick. And we've, we've figured it out. But what, how do you undo that? I don't know. How do you undo a city? Well, the only time I've ever seen cities undone in a profound way is in communist China. You know, and we call it communist China then on purpose because it was everybody lived the communist manifesto way it was expressed in a Maoist form. And basically, they depopulated the cities. They literally forced people out of the city onto the ground so they could become, they could be repeasanted or something. I mean, and I don't think that's going to happen. No. Um, but what might happen is that parts of cities might just break down because they don't have access. And you can see that happening. You can see development on one side and lack of care for other neighborhoods. So in a city like Toronto, you see all these different kinds of things. So I'm interested in, now that I'm closer to the GTA, connecting myself to that urban experience as well and understand the... Uh... So Northern Ontario is colonization. Northern Ontario is at relationships with Indigenous peoples. It's, it's raw. It's there. It's right in front of you. And the further south you get, the more it's covered over by this sense of entitlement which is pretty scary. Mm-hmm. So is that where you hope your research will go in the future, I guess? After yeah, at the theoretical level, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm producing these books, will not just be understanding um, how food systems work, but understanding kind of philosophically what that means to people. Same thing with shelter. And then coming to the end of my career, which is I'm coming closer to the end of it, my legacy hopefully will be a, a, a better glimpse at what community means in a political sense. So has this research changed, I'm sure it has, changed the way you see food and oh, sort of absolutely, see... absolutely, yeah. I'm much more your, conscious of what yeah. I do. I'm much more conscious of the, um, as a professor, the what I what I portray in the classroom, what I how I teach. My actions always speak louder than my words, and they always do. You know, you, lots of people could talk about things for lots of time, but if you just sit there talking about them and don't do anything, I tend to connect myself to a lot of community organizations. So... One of the things I'm really proud of bringing here is the Humanities 101 program, which is, it's something that, that shouldn't be researched, it should just be done. So this, the other thing is, I like this idea of, sort of action research, which you just act the research out. You don't, you don't have to theorize it about a lot and just do it and get it done and move on and move on to the next project. And so there's, most people don't understand, as university professors, we have three parts of our 
of our contract that we have to fulfill. The one that most people see is the, is the teaching. And so the students tend to see that. And, and sometimes they'll get a glimpse of the research if they become a research assistant or if, they, if the professor decides to bring their research and point it out mm-hmm. that this is my research. And some people do it a little more obviously than others into the classroom. But also we are responsible for producing a certain body of research every, every year. And we try and keep a research program going. And, you know, and the, but the third thing is service. And so most times people commit themselves to servicing the needs of the university itself by sitting on committees and mm-hmm. doing things like sit on Senate and things like that. But for me, it's more. It's, it's not just doing community service for the community here. It's also doing community service for the community where the university is situated. So I keep pushing that point with my colleagues, and it's hard because they are also looking to advance their careers in the way that is normally done, which is to produce as much published material mm-hmm. as possible, most of which doesn't really get read except by a very small group of people. So you end up producing your work for a very small group of people. And I guess I think a bit larger than that. At the same time, I, I'm so active that I don't have the time to write these big things. So this is my big attempt to do these books. Mm-hmm. It's going to be, or it may end up being one book, one large book, but this is what my sabbatical plan is. So. All right. Well, to wrap it up, I'm mm-hmm. just going to ask you, if you had to explain your research in mm-hmm. five words, yeah. what five words would you use? Community-based food studies research. All right. Well, that sounds good. <laughs> good and succinct. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Dr. West, for joining us thank today. You. Thank, thank you, you so Stephanie. much. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Research Inside Out. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss another podcast. You should also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Lakehead Aurelia to stay up to date with all things Lakehead and to continue getting an inside look into the day-to-day happenings of our campus. 